Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Samuel! Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are continuing our journey through the Gospels. This is Gospels part 25. In the previous episode, we saw that Jesus traveled to Jerusalem for a pilgrimage festival, and he went to this pool where there's this supernatural activity traditionally uh, that has been going on where blind, lame, paralyzed people would come to get into the water at a certain time to be healed, and Jesus had this interaction with this man that had been invalid for 38 years, and we have another instance where Jesus has this knowledge of the inner parts of the man or woman, humanity, by knowing that he had been there a long time and had this interaction with him, uh, sort of asking him, like, why is it that you've been here for so long? Like, are you really wanting to get healed, or is this something that you're just doing now out of tradition, or it's, you know, what what is expected of you in that condition? And Jesus actually, you know, saw that he was really a seeker of it and wanted to get healed and so jesus told him like get up your bed and walk and um we had that sort of study and looking at whether the the man had the faith uh to believe that the healing was taking place and then he made the effort to get up and start walking or the miracle happened and then he started to feel changes in his body we don't really know but the the big crux of this miracle is that it happened on the sabbath and that we we spent a lot of time looking at where in the places in the torah it talks about to not do work to leave your home because we were looking at the the importance of the man carrying his bedroll that is the quote-unquote violation of the sabbath because it's it's his home it's the only thing that he owns and the the crux of Last week's lesson was that Jesus was, was focusing on alleviating the suffering of human beings on the Sabbath, and that should take precedence over the traditional, maybe the Jewish oral laws that they have uh, created over the centuries on how they interpret the Torah, and that the priority should be if you have an opportunity to alleviate someone's suffering on the Sabbath, that should take priority for someone's life. Yeah. Yeah, that was a, I mean, it's a beautiful picture, uh, but here we got this guy kind of getting a little bit of trouble because he was violating the Sabbath, carrying his bed, but then he sees Jesus again, and Jesus is like, hey, good for you, you're healed now, you know, sin no more. It's that invitation to to the kingdom, if you will, mm-hmm. and we pick up in verse 15. What chapter are we in? We like in chapter five right now? I think That's so. It. John five. <laughs> Sorry, I need to get my bearings. John five fifteen. We pick up with this guy. Uh, let's go ahead and read. Um, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So again, real quick, when we see the Jews at this point, what we should be thinking is some Jewish leaders here in Jerusalem. And now, uh, the the interesting thing is, uh, he says, he, he went and told them that it was Jesus. But of course, in the conversation, the guy didn't learn anything more about who he was, so we don't really know what happened there. And, I mean, for all we know, he might have just walked over to him and pointed. It's that guy. That guy right there. The thing is, um, there's any number of motivations this guy could have had. And, and I think to imagine that it was, you know, that's the guy, that's the bad guy. Okay, that's probably not what we're seeing. He probably thought he was helping out. Here he is. Here's the one doing the miracle. Check him out, Right. Now, the, the funny thing is, though, that the Pharisees, once they hear about this, 
their interest in the man, the one who had been healed, the one who was carrying his mat, all that, that's just all gone. They don't seem to care at all that that was a violation of the Sabbath. Now their interest is piqued by something completely different. They want the instigator. They want the one who performed a healing on the Sabbath. And you even get this idea that like, well, look, carrying a bed is bad and everything, but they can ignore that because here's this other guy who had the gall to heal a 38-year invalid on the Sabbath. Like, that's completely unacceptable. It's a crazy picture when you say it that way, but that's what they're doing. And, that you know, they're going to follow him. They're going to try to catch him or attack him or whatever. They're hostile toward Jesus for doing this awesome work. Yeah, it's it's wild to think about when in time period of the nation of Israel's history that that aspect of prioritizing human like alleviating human suffering on the Sabbath got lost because we, at least in this podcast, we're trying to treat the Messiah Jesus as not creating a new system, but bringing to light the things of God's expressed will with humanity to light that has been lost, you know, over the generations and bring it to its true essence and its fulfillment. And it just, it's sad to hear on how that got lost along the way. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to see it more and more. It's, it is a recurring theme all through the New Testament. But it's, it's good for us to see it because, you know, it's easy to point our fingers at them and go, look what they're doing. They're so dumb. And then if you really are honest with yourself, you can see we do the exact same thing. So, Oh, yeah. Anyway, let's look at verse 17. Uh, so so they, they're bothered. They don't care about the mat anymore. They want to get the guy doing the healing. Verse 17 But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. Now, what's interesting about this, and you're going to see that this is a pattern with Jesus, after all that we've been saying, and you've brought it up, the alleviation of suffering and, you know, prioritizing all that, you would actually think that Jesus was going to come back with something like, dude, or guys, I'm prioritizing the alleviation of suffering over the Sabbath. But of course, this is Jesus. He doesn't talk like that. He goes outside the box and says, my father is working until now, and I am working. So, (laughs) this is how Jesus makes his defense. God's working, so am I. Of course, just on the surface, I mean, there's something about that that sounds kind of good, right, Samuel? I mean, if God is working and I'm doing what God's doing, I mean, that's a good thing, right? Mm-hmm. But in the context of the story and at the moment he says it, what the heck does he mean? It's, I mean, why did you just say that? And, and even more, did they somehow know what he meant, what he was getting at? Well, for one thing, and we've touched on it lightly, we're going to say it explicitly here. What this definitely does not mean is that Jesus is intending in some way or in any way to abolish the Sabbath. That is simply not in view here. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to drill in a little bit and help us to see exactly what is going on, what is being said. So, Sammy, we're going to go back to Genesis 2. This is right after the, the six days of creation. We're now on the seventh day. And I've, well, I've copied out some little bits. You don't have to read the whole thing. Why don't you read what I've highlighted there? Mm -hmm. He, that is God, rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Okay. Now, I want you to notice something, Samuel. If I ask the question this way, did God rest from all his work? Well, should we answer yes or no? Um, I feel like this is an instance where there's like an asterisk over it or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The asterisk is the phrase that follows. He rested from all his work that he had done. And it says it twice. He rested from all his work that he had done. And the second time, it's even more explicit, all the work that he had done in creation. 
So if we're really paying attention to what the scripture is telling us, we, we see the idea of rest, even God himself resting from productive work, creative work, whatever you want to call it. And yet, it's like it's left a little window open for, but is that really all his work? And then if we just roll through the story just a little bit, notice that even though God is resting from his work, just some simple things, Samuel, um, it, it ways that God is continuing to maintain the creation. On that Sabbath day and on every other Sabbath day, Samuel, does the sun come up? I sure hope it does. Does the rain fall? Yeah. Yeah. So you can see just in the simplest things, well, God's obviously continuing to to maintain creation. And more than that, we know that there's the garden story with Adam and Eve. And then from that point forward, all the rest of the story is about how God is redeeming both man and all creation. But that work of redemption that begins after the garden, well, God is doing that work even on the Sabbath. And that's exactly what we're seeing in this picture. This idea of redemption is manifest or somehow uh, embodied in this act of healing this, this lame man. God is working redemption, and God is doing it on the Sabbath, which is why Jesus did it on the Sabbath. Do you see what I, where I'm headed? I think so. Like there's a difference between the type of work that is creative, either in God's sense or in a human sense, our jobs, our careers, our hobbies, those things are producing a product of some sort, uh, cr- you know, creating order out of chaos. But that's that's a separate type of work than something that is maintaining, um, I don't know, health and um, beauty and sustenance to either the created world or to human beings. Yeah, and in the simplest sense, we can simply say there is some work that really is not allowed in God's mind, or you could even say in the Jewish leader's mind, whatever, but there's also some work that is allowed, and that goes back to our story of prioritizing alleviation of suffering over, in this case, the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. See, Jesus is not violating the Sabbath. He is continuing in the same work that the Father has been continuing in since the garden. And so we need to be able to see in these stories that there is a difference, and and that's where all this confusion and problem comes from. Mm -hmm. So verse 18 Now, (laughs) this is kind of crazy. Listen how they respond. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Okay. So first they're mad about the guy with his bed. And then they found something bigger, Jesus healing on the Sabbath. Now they found something even bigger. He's trying to make himself equal with God. So you see in them, they've moved from, hey, you know, they they wanted to persecute this guy. They wanted to go after him. And now, whether you take it literally or not, you can you can for sure recognize the escalation. They're saying they want to kill him. What's Super interesting, though, is exactly what it is about his response that made them want to do that. Did you notice, Samuel, that Jesus said, my father instead of our father? Mm-hmm. I didn't. I was reading along, didn't think anything of it until I got to verse 18, and then I had to go back and reread 17 to find out, oh my gosh, he did say my father, and that really irked them. Yeah, like it didn't seem like as big a deal. Like I, I registered that he said that, but now that verse 18 focuses on that, it's like, well, yeah, why was that a big deal? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so they take it 
as Jesus equating himself with God. More like, instead of I'm doing the work that he's doing, it's more like, I can work because he can work. Now, it's understandable, just on the, on the face of it, that they would find, you know, somebody equating themselves with God offensive. I mean, that's fair, right? But it's not true. And just as an example, we're going to see it as we continue through the text, but I just want to show you something outside of here real quick. Uh, Samuel, why don't you go ahead and read uh, from John 14, verse 28. It's Jesus talking. Mm-hmm. It's a snippet. Yeah, it says, the Father is greater than I. Yeah, and I want to use that as just an example. There's, it's almost like this general motif that Jesus has. It's the way he seems to understand his relationship to the Father. And that is, it's one of unity, not equality. Do you see the difference there, Samuel? Yeah, I actually have another verse I could add in really quickly that could complement the John fourteen twenty-eight. So this is the Apostle Paul talking about this aspect between you know, Messiah the Son and God the Father. Um, this is in First Corinthians fifteen twenty four. He's looking ahead to the end times, like the kingdom and the world to come, and he says, "Then the end will come when he hands over the he is Messiah Jesus when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power." Oh yeah, and that is so perfect for what's coming up as we continue through the text. It's such a great thing. But yeah, the, the fact that this whole picture of Jesus considering himself separate and at the same time in unity and, I mean, obviously, I mean, we're not denying Jesus is God, and yet Jesus, he doesn't consider it equality. It's just a, it's an interesting dynamic that they have. But I want to point out this unity That's something that you and I, Samuel, everybody listening, everybody, that's something attainable by us, between us and God. We can get into unity with God, varying degrees, I'm sure, right? But we can do Mm -hmm. that. Equality, okay, not so much. That's never going to happen. Again, we may as well just say it out loud. This has nothing to do with whether or not Jesus is God. That, that topic, it's just not in view here. This is about how Jesus is viewing himself or setting himself up. It's not equal. It's just unified, and that's, that's, that's the way Jesus saw it. So the point is that the, these Jewish leaders, they've completely misunderstood. Yeah, I was actually going to ask that really quickly. Is, is their desire to kill him are we to treat that as like a sinful reaction on their part, or is there something within Jewish law of their interpretations of the Torah that suggests that when someone is promoting heretical things like that, supposed heretical things, mm. that they have the green light to put them to death? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think that's uh, for sure. That they're not—I uh, don't think we should imagine them operating on emotion. I think everything that we see them do, let's just say it this way, they believe that they are fully justified within the law. Now, we can argue about whether they're right or wrong or whatever, but they're, they're seeing it, whether they think it's blasphemy or, or however they would uh, categorize it. I'm sure that for sure in their minds, this guy has broken the law, but they're wrong. Mm-hmm. They're just wrong. Yeah. So we get down to verse 19, and now they actually haven't said anything. This was, it was actually more like John was explaining there in verse 18, but whatever. We get to verse 19, and Jesus is going to say something to them. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, Thus, that the son does also, or likewise. Now, uh, we've picked on that little phrase, truly, truly, before. Is it applying to, you know, what he said before, what he's saying after, both, whatever. Here, it kind of seems obvious because we don't have any other conversation that he's 
you know, he's talking about what he's about to say. But he does something very interesting. It's uh, on one hand, it kind of seems like he's elaborating on verse 17, but he's speaking in the third person. He's talking about a son and a father, and, and you don't get the sense that it has to be him and God. I mean, it's obvious that it certainly could be, and I would suggest is, but he says it in a way that applies to any son and any father. And you can imagine, and, and, and I'm sure many of us in our regular human life experience, we've had, you know, parent-child relationship, and we understand the teaching and the learning and how that all works and how that would kind of fit with the image painted here. We can imagine a young Jesus learning from Joseph. You know, he's watching, he's imitating. Uh, but at the same time, you can imagine Jesus, whether young or older, also learning from God, watching and imitating. And in that, and I think this is important, it's because we're going to say it like 50 times, I'm exaggerating, but it'll be a lot. You can see that when Jesus speaks, there's going to be this continual thread of subordination of Jesus to God, the Son to the Father. And and he is, throughout all of this, directly refuting their conclusion that somehow he's equating himself with God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's really good on how he brought that up, because I don't think that it would be something that the Jewish leaders would be unaware of. Exactly. Because this, this response is very Jewish, very Eastern, yeah. that we talked about it before, that concept of a Badov, um, and I don't mean to get controversial or anything, but it's just, it's so different than modern Western culture where, it is. you know, some fam- modern families give complete agency to the child, like, you know, they get to choose how they grow up and the values that they can create on their own, but in this culture, and I think that it, you know, is probably a lot more healthy and stable, is that, no, it's like the child's upbringing and how they turn out as an adult oftentimes comes from the legacy and the model of the father in the family and that um, nothing of how the son is going to be raised and the values and the teachings it's not going to come from anywhere else except from the father yeah yeah it's yeah you're exactly right and we say it over and over you've got to put yourself back in the time, in the culture, in the place, try to understand how they might be hearing these words, understanding these words, all of that. And I mean, it's kind of cool because we, we pointed out in verse 19 how it, it's it, he kind of, he's left it out there so that you could imagine this being any father and son, and yet you you also know that he is talking about him and his relationship to God. He gets to verse 20 And then he makes it more explicit. He says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. And so he starts out, it feels like he's continuing the, this could be any father and son anywhere, but then he finishes it up with, yeah, uh, you ain't seen nothing yet. Natural fathers teach their sons. They share things, you know, share everything, and and it's out of love. And just as Joseph did that with Jesus, so God does this with Jesus. But then he, you know, he kind of pushes that final button. He's going to do things so that you may marvel. So it's kind of cool. It's like a little build up, right? Yeah. Let's see. Verse 21, he's going to continue this theme, uh, but now it's going to get, I think he's really going to stretch them maybe beyond what, what, I don't know, we would expect they could handle, but here it goes. Verse 21, for as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. 
For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. (laughs) And you could just imagine these guys, right? As soon as he opens his mouth, the Son gives life to whom he will. They're like, whoa! Yeah, and ah, uh, it's it had to be crazy. But Jesus, he's just laying it on him. He claims to share with his father the power of life, the authority to judge mankind, and all do honor. If they didn't want to kill him before, surely they do now, <laughs> right? I mean, and uh, just for fun, didn't he just get done making it clear that they weren't equal? Yeah, that th- these verses don't seem to indicate that. Yeah, it's 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 uh, it's adding to it. But this, uh, we need to see that there's an important distinction here, and it actually it ties in with the verse that you shared from First Corinthians. So let's keep going. Um, this that he's talking about uh, here's a key phrase. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. It's a delegated power or a delegated authority. And that's what we're seeing in all of this. He's still not claiming equality. It's it's different than that. He's trying to show how, because they're in unity and God is working in and through him, that some of these things have been delegated. So let's let's look a little further. Number one, uh, the father raises the dead and gives them life. So Samuel, we know like the big end of the story. What's the what's going to happen to humans? They're all going to be resurrected. Resurrected. So yeah, God is going to give them life. Okay, but we see it in other places in Scripture too. Let's real quick go to Deuteronomy thirty-two. 39. Read that one for me. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I kill and I make alive. Now, we might think of that as more natural things like birth and when we die, when we're old, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But just so you know, it was it was a thing in old Judaism trying to figure out what are all these scriptures saying. This this little bit, I kill and I make alive, actually was one of the uh, uh, foundational ideas for the resurrection. Hmm. Psalm sixteen ten. Read that one. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your holy one see corruption. Yeah. And of course, this is super famous in regular Christian circles because this is, that's about Messiah, right? He was, he was resurrected after only three days. Um, so we see God doing that work. And we can go further, like, uh, remember when Jesus is hanging on the cross? One of the mm-hmm. things he says, Samuel, I don't know if you remember, it's really famous, comes from the Psalms. Yeah. It's like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yes. Do not get the idea in your head that Jesus is hanging up there and all of a sudden he's like, "Uh uh-oh, where'd God go? Oh, God, why have you forsaken me? Stop it. He's, He's reciting Psalm 22 so that... The listeners, the, the the story writers, the readers of the story can go back to Psalm 22 and see what's going on there. Psalm 22 covers the entire story of death and resurrection. We could go to Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Same thing. Uh, what's another one? Daniel 12, 2. Yeah, go ahead and read that one, Samuel. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall wake, awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Yeah. More images of the resurrection. Those who sleep shall awake. See, Jesus is going to be the first instance of this. He's the firstborn of the resurrected, the new creation. But he will also be able to give it away 
just as the Father has given it to him. Now, can you believe that Jesus is saying this to the Jewish leadership this early on in the ministry? Do you, I mean, the the gravity of, of what he is saying is just huge. It's, yeah, it is so much. Yeah, but, and now this is also important to see, the, the fact, this whole idea of the Son giving life, this isn't just for the resurrection. It is also for now. I'm going to say that phrase again, Samuel. The now and the not yet. Yeah. Right? But you can experience that life now. We're going to talk more about that as we continue. Um, and then I, there's another phrase in here. It's kind of weird. I want to talk about this. For the Father judges no one. Now, I can imagine how somebody would read that and they'd kind of be going, huh, that's funny. God was never going to judge anybody or anything, but since he sent Jesus, I guess everybody's going to get judged now. Well, that's not what it's saying. It's not as if the judgment only came with the Son. God is, of course, the original and the final judge, but he's given judgment to the Son. And some. And we're going to see a little bit of this. It's kind of cool. Some argue that this was always the way it was supposed to be, that man was always intended to be judged by man. Now, that sounds kind of weird, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not saying that, that this is like a hard and fast kind of rule, but it is a, it's a very interesting view, and there are a lot of scriptures that, actually support this idea. I'm just going to touch on a real quick one here. And whatever the truth, you got to admit this, Samuel, which would you rather be judged by? Someone who is, you know, an all-powerful and perfect in every way God? Or someone who has actually had to live like a human, just like you and I have had to? Definitely the latter. You would think, especially when that human just happens to be also God, right? Yeah. So, Let's look at this. Acts 17, verses 30 and 31. Read through that one. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Oh, (laughs) is that not awesome? Yeah, it just lays it right out there. Yeah, well, there's a million things in that verse, but we're trying to keep it focused on what we're talking about. Number one, um, just want to point this out, quick side note, he's commanding who? All people everywhere, not just Jews. And what is he commanding them to do, Samuel? To repent. Repent. And repent is to turn back, which is to turn to something. We turn away from our own will to God's will, we turn away from our ways, we go to God's ways, which is the law and the Torah, in whatever way it might apply to you. Mm-hmm. But now, here's the important part, though, and so I said I wasn't going to try to distract us, and then I went and did it. But here we go. Uh, we're talking about being judged by a man, and it says, the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man. And that oh, is such, such a cool picture. Let's see. And then why does he do this? That all may honor the Son. And they're going to honor the Son in everything, right? And we know God is the one who who deserves the honor. He's like the, the original primary source and, and, and uh, object of our honor. But if God has given these things to the Son, then that same honor must also be given to him. If, it's, if, if, it, if it isn't given to him, if we don't do it, well, then we're just dishonoring the one who gave it. So if we don't honor the son, we are dishonoring the father because the father gave these things to the son. And I just got to say, it's really just a matter of timing. One day, all will honor the son and the father. And it's just better to do it now. And here's... Uh, another way to say it, like when, like here when he says, whoever does not honor, it's very similar to another verse. Uh, Matthew, uh, Samuel, why don't you read Matthew 10, 40? 
Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Yeah. So you see the logic. It's it's the same logic in both places, and it's all about, look, if your faithfulness and your loyalty and everything else, if it's geared toward God, as it should be, then you should have no problem giving it to the Son also, Jesus also, because God gave it to him, and that that is the way that it's supposed to work out. You receive one, you receive the other. If you don't receive one, you don't receive the other. It's just the way the, the logic works. Make sense? Yeah, it's super good. It kind of touches on that aspect that we said before about Jesus being the true man, um, the true example of humanity, and that is kind of like the standard in which all of humanity will be judged yeah. uh, because you have your life, things you did, you did not do, and that's being compared to what humanity should have looked like shown in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Yeah. And then, you know, you get into the aspect of are are you relying on how your own life lived completely to have a positive or negative judgment, or are you looking towards the true man to give you you know, the outpouring of that merit on your behalf, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have got a knack for, like, um, what do they call that uh, in the uh, precog? You're like, you're, like, predicting the things that are coming in the text. This is awesome. <laughs> oh, <no>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is or good. Or just a glorified spoiler. <laughs> Either way, it's working. Let's look. Um, let's go to verse 24. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Okay, so this is just the first part of it. Let's, let's uh, um, focus on a couple of things here, though, so we're not skipping over. Okay, he uses that phrase again, truly, truly. I'm just going to leave it up to you. Do you think he's talking about what he just said? Or what he's about to say? Do you think maybe it applies to both? Whatever. It's just fun to play that little game uh, because it uh, it just makes all of his words, it, it's like putting a little uh, asterisk or an exclamation point, something makes them seem more important. But anyway, he says, whoever hears my word. Okay, now uh, I'm sure you've heard us say this before. Obviously, it isn't just to hear like the physiological auditory function or something like that, but it's to hear, to listen, to obey whoever hears my word. And then just, you might wonder, well, what word? Sounds kind of specific, right? But I, I don't I don't think that it is intended to be one specific thing here. It's more like the whole of his teaching, the, his, his entire message, which is, of course, unified, and it's only saying what God has already said across the centuries. So you got to hear that word. And it says, also believe in him who has sent me. Now, I'm just going to point out an interesting little twist, only, you know, compared to modern Christianity. Jesus doesn't say to him who believes in me. He says, believes him who sent me. Now. I'm not denying that believing in Jesus has an important role, but I'm pointing this out because I think these words were carefully chosen because remember, we're on this long, I I don't want to call it a rant because Jesus is doing it, but you know what I'm saying, this long uh, series of, of argumentation and included in that is the thread of subordination to the Father. It all started with, he thinks he's equal with God. And so he doesn't say, believe in me. He says, believes him who sent me. He could have said it either way, but I think he kind of tossed this in. It's, it's just more of that subordination to the Father. Mm-hmm. And then he declares that they will have eternal life. In fact, I didn't even say it right, did I, Samuel? It says, if you hear my word and believe has eternal life, not will have, has it. When you live as a new creation, pursuing righteousness, 
faithfully. You can taste of that eternal life even now. And you can look forward to the future, the fully realized one, if we, if we want to say it that way. Again, now and not yet. It says that he does not come into judgment. Mm-hmm. Wait a second. I think we got a problem, Samuel. How can this say that you don't come into judgment? Read Romans 14.10, at least the part I've highlighted. Yeah, yeah. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Hmm. This one is saying, if you do this and this and this, you don't come into judgment. And that one says that we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. That's it. Toss the Bible. Podcast's over. See you guys later. (laughs) No. Let's read another one. I think this will help us understand a little bit better. John 3.18, the part I highlighted. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Yeah, and we've already been over that verse. But here's what I want to try to point out. Samuel, when you enter into judgment, let's just make this simple and say that you have two basic outcomes. What are they? Judgment that results in life or judgment that results in death. Yeah. And this is true even in like the the regular world, like here in America, you have to go to court for something. You can either, you know, like be guilty or innocent. You could be set free or have to go to jail or something, right? There's good and bad in judgment. And so when one says he does not come into judgment, and another place says that we'll all stand before the judgment seat. I've got it. Maybe what we can do is use the John verse and say, yeah, yeah, the point is that even in entering into judgment, there is no condemnation. There is no consequence. You are saved from that. That, that's the message that's being communicated here. It's the idea that, okay, whether there is a contradiction in scripture or whether one is right or one is wrong or however you want to see that. The real takeaway, the real point is that you see and understand, even in entering into judgment, you will not face the consequence of it, and therefore, it's like not coming into judgment. You pass from death to life, right? He's not going to experience the due consequences of his sin, which should be death, but he has passed from death to life. Yeah, that's good. A couple things. In Ecclesiastes, this is just reinforcing that we're still going to experience some form of judgment on what our lives looked like. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 14, the writer says, For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Um, And then I think that, I mean, I don't know whether these Jewish leaders are recognizing this, but... I think Jesus is continuing to model the aspect that Jewish nation has had whenever they see and they treat their patriarchal fathers, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, even Moses, where they see those figures as because of their merit, the rest of the people experience life and salvation and redemption, and in the same way, He's saying here that if you're relying on the merit of the Son, you're experiencing life and you're not experiencing a judgment that results into death. So, I don't know. It just seems like the system that he's trying to explain to them shouldn't have been any different than how they treated their forefathers. Right. Yeah. And we see so many examples of that throughout the Scripture where where people, some person or people, whatever— benefit from the merit that someone else has gained or earned with God. And Jesus is just continuing that theme. That is what grace looks like. Uh, But yeah, it's a good point. Now this, oh, Samuel, I think we just got into some really cool part of the scripture as if it wasn't good enough already. (laughs) All right, uh, seriously, driving while you're listening or not, You're going to need to put your seatbelt on. (laughs) 
<laughs> so verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Okay, I can't just ignore it because we've said it too many times already. Truly, truly, right? Is he talking before? Is he talking what he's about to say after? Is he talking about both? You choose, doesn't matter. Uh, just, it's good to notice that phrase. Something important is being said here. But check this out. Okay, an hour is coming and is now here. Okay, just generally speaking, Samuel, what does that sound like to you? Sounds like something that is in... In between? Impossible. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Right. An hour is coming, and it's now here, right? And it should also remind you of something that we keep whacking you over the head with, this idea of the now and the not yet. There is kingdom life now. It's only a foretaste, if we can use that phrase. But there is also kingdom life that is to come. And that is, of course, when it's in its fullness, when Jesus has returned and there's a resurrection. Now, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear. Okay? Now, this actually speaks of is now here. The very life that you're living right now, those who hear his voice now those who hear and obey lives, uh, faithful, loyal obedience to his will, that kind of thing, they will live. They will experience that foretaste of the kingdom. But you could also say, when the dead will hear, okay, they're going to hear that voice of God. Also, this speaks of the first resurrection. This is where this gets really cool. Okay, so first resurrection, this is Jesus' return. It's at the start of the millennial kingdom here on earth. That's this very earth, the one we're living on right now. Those who hear his voice, and it's, it's the same. The ones who hear and obey and live lives that are faithful, loyal, obedient, all of that. They will live. They will, in this case though, they will be raised in their resurrected bodies to live eternally. So right here in this verse 25, We've got Jesus speaking of the now and the not yet. We've got him speaking of specifically the first resurrection. And I'm going to prove it to you. Let's go on to verse 26, 27. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And He has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Now, these two verses, they probably kind of feel like a repeat if you've been paying attention. But if it's worth repeating in the scripture, it's worth us talking about it a little bit more. So this idea of having life in himself. It's like saying that Jesus is not a recipient of life like every other thing in creation but instead that he is, like God, the actual source of it. And at the same time, it says that it has been granted to him, still emphasizing that subordination and that delegation, right? Very interesting uh, interplay here with with the words and, and what they're doing. But again, it's been granted to him, to have life, so that adds a little bit to what it said in the, in the first verses. He's given him authority to execute judgment, and this isn't just decision-making, right? It's not just pronouncing guilty, not guilty, life, death, good, evil, but it's also carrying it out, carrying out the consequence of that judgment. And this is all because, this is, goes, goes back to what we talked about up there, Because he is the Son of Man. And I want to point out that word the that you see in your English translation, because he is the Son of Man, that's technically not even in the Greek text. So if we want to get super technical, it should actually say because he is 
a son of man. And this is important. Okay, Samuel, first of all, is Jesus the son of man? Definitely. Yes, we, we're not denying that. But what's being said here in this verse is that it's because he is a son of man. And this is amazing. The reason that God gives him this authority to execute judgment, I don't know if it's like the entire reason, but it is certainly a reason. The reason he gives him this authority to execute judgment is because he is a human. Who could possibly better judge humans than one who has lived as a human? We talked about it. With all the struggles, all the temptations, etc. This is why it's so important that we see Jesus in his humanity. Nobody's denying his divinity, but we have to see him in his humanity, walking through this life as a human, having victory over sin in his humanity. Super important, especially, and I'm just going to say, we, we know that he's also God. He is the word, that agent of God, that limited expression of God that can actually function within creation. He is that word made flesh. Sounds like another shameless plug for the book of Hebrews, huh, Samuel? Yeah. If we ever do that one, boy, people are going to love it. Just saying. Love it or hate it. <laughs> well, boy, you're right. That's true. But but let's keep going because I, I, I was telling you I was going to prove about the first resurrection and all that stuff. We got we to gotta get this out there. Can so, I just add oh, please. super, super quick uh, tidbit? Um, I think that your comment about the Greek um, imp- actually literally saying not the son of man, but a son of man would actually be really important to the Jewish listeners because that is almost the exact word-for-word phrase of uh, the the Messiah being mentioned in Daniel, yes. uh, chapter 7, 13, and 14, Good because point. Daniel's prophesying, prophesying in verse 13, he said, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And so as important as Jewish people hold the prophets, whenever they hear that, yeah, especially Jesus saying that, that's going to take them directly back to Daniel, and it, later in that verse, it talks about that son of man being given dominion and authority, and you know yeah. that that reeks of that judgment that we're talking about. Yeah. Oh, good point. Yeah, glad you highlighted that. It just makes it that much more clear. All right. So he's been saying all this stuff, which I don't know about you. I think this stuff is just crazy, amazing, super cool. Uh, but he he he's not quite done. Let's get to verse twenty eight. He says this. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Okay, this is, oh, I almost got shivers. It's so good. First of all, he says this, do not marvel at this. Okay. Is that realistic? Yeah, didn't he just say a few verses ago he's doing all this so that you would marvel? Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, this is, a, this is a tall, tall order. Do not marvel at this. But whatever, he says it. But look at what he says. An hour is coming. Okay. He just said that a minute ago, except he said an hour is coming and is now here. But this time he doesn't say that. He just says an hour is coming. Again, we're talking about a resurrection. But now we're talking about the second resurrection. It's not for now, like verse 25 was. Okay? Super important. It says that they will hear his voice and come out. All who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Okay, so this is important. Eventually, all will hear his voice. In the first set, hey, there were some who would. And there was a good consequence of that. But in this case, all will hear his voice. Those that were in the first resurrection, well, they've already heard it. In fact, they've already been raised. They've been spared 
the consequences of judgment because they have already received the grace that God imparts due to the merit that has been accrued by his son. But look what they're resurrected to. Those who have done good, okay, uh, this is important. This judgment isn't about what you believe. It's about what you do. Now, that isn't exactly true because your actions are the indicator of what you actually truly believe. That's what we need to see here. It doesn't say that it's about what you believe, it's about what you do, but the what you do is based on what you truly, truly believe. If your actions are weighed in the balance and you've done good, meaning you you actually believed the things that God said and you lived in a manner according to that, well, then you too will have eternal life, just like those in the first resurrection. But to those who have done evil, okay, again, it's not about what you believe, it's about what you do. If you're doing evil, that's because you're, do, you're, you're acting based on what you truly believe. When your actions are weighed in the balance, you've done evil, you have eternal death. And we don't even have to get into details of what that means. That would be too distracting at this point. Let's just make it simple. There's eternal life and there's eternal death. Whatever those things mean, judgment results in one of these two opposites, life or death. Now, here I am. I'm telling you all this stuff about resurrections and judgment and all of these things, all based on these verses here in Matthew, things that Jesus, I'm sorry, in John, things that Jesus is saying. But now, Samuel, we're going to go out to Revelation and show you that this lines up perfectly with what John wrote in Revelation as well. So read for me, if you will, the snippets from Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. Mm -hmm. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. So doesn't that line up perfectly? It's exactly what we were saying back in the earlier verses. Uh, Time is coming and is now here. All right, how about you read Revelation chapter 20, verses 12 through 15. Snippets. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the dead were judged according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life... He was thrown into the lake of fire. Yeah. And again, exactly like what Jesus is talking about here. He's this early on talking to Jewish leaders. He is laying out at least some of the little bits that we know about what the end is going to look like. There is going to be a first resurrection, and it is for those who are undeniably on God's team. They are already in the book of life. And, you know, in a sense, no judgment necessary, if you could say it that way. They're in. It's when Jesus comes back, they go through the the thousand-year kingdom, all of that. And then, at the end of that kingdom, there's everyone else is resurrected, and there's a real judgment. And I say real just in the sense that you don't know the outcome before you get into it. And, and your, your life, your deeds, your actions are weighed in the balance. If the balance leans toward the good, then you also are added to the book of life and you get to go, you know, experience eternal life with everybody else. But if in the balance, the, the bad is the one that's weighing things down a little bit, well, sorry, dude, it's death for you. 
the second death, the lake of fire. And again, we're not going to get into what all that means, but this is a point. Uh, and everything that Jesus is saying, and I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that seeing all of this resurrection stuff in these verses is a little bit outside the box for people, maybe not everybody, but it is so amazing to see that in Jesus' words right here, knowing the end of the story. If you were just reading this through for the first time for yourself, this this is just phenomenal. Phenomenal. Oh, yeah. Like, if... <laughs> I know I'm feeling this way, but if your brain is not being split in half right now, if it is, then that means that this message is working and that it's making you think and ponder and meditate because it's so many layers to it. Um, I know that we're over time, but Paul, actually, I I want to make sure that you're saying something, like I want to clarify something, then I kind of want to ask a question based on all the things that you've said because if I'm thinking of it, I have a feeling that maybe other people are wrestling with this with this too if that's okay. To do it. So are you saying that there are those both in the first resurrection and the second resurrection that will get to experience a life a a, a judgment that results in life? Yes. Okay. Um and then the second thing is that those in the second judgment or the second resurrection um are are we to treat all of those people as those who were not on god's team so to so to speak like uh they weren't pledging their loyalty and their faithfulness to god and that's why they weren't grouped in the first resurrection and that their situation is solely being based on what their lives were about like were they promoting more good than evil or were they promoting more evil than good? Is that how we're treating those people? Yeah, I hear what you're asking there, and that is really, really difficult to answer. I'm going to have to back off a little bit and be just a little more general, which might also be a little less satisfying, but I'm only going to say this. What we see in this is that it is possible for a human to live in a manner, to have a relationship with God in some way that qualifies him for the first resurrection. Now, I can't draw that line for you. I can't tell you all that that means. But but there is a life that can be lived that qualifies you for that first resurrection. And that is the goal. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you, right? Mm -hmm. Seek first the kingdom. Now, those people that don't make the kingdom, what are those people like? I mean, would we look at them and think, well, gosh, I don't know. I, I always figured he was on God's team. You know, that. I mean, I can't believe he didn't make it. Yeah, maybe. Or maybe it's people that, you know, kind of like when Paul talks about in Romans, they're people that... Uh, they didn't really understand the law. They didn't. They weren't taught. They they didn't learn, and yet they they. It's almost like they were a law unto themselves because they they did good and right things anyway, even without help and instruction and and whatnot. I don't know. I don't know where that dividing line is. I only know that there obviously is one. Because if there wasn't, then everybody in the second resurrection would just go to death. Mm-hmm. But they don't. So I I hear what you're asking, and I'm probably not totally satisfying you, but there you go. No, I think everything that you said is good, because I think hopefully it's starting to address a misconception that maybe some people think that the second resurrection only results in death for all those who are resurrected. And Jesus and John and Revelation are both seeming to suggest that that's not the case. That's right. Long story short, I think that the the moral is if you have a de- if you have a desire within yourself to want to be on God's team, be on God's team and make every opportunity to choose good in your life. Um, and I think God will work out the rest. Yeah, it's just like, well, how does it work? 
do I have to believe for a miracle to happen? Or do miracles happen cause belief and faith? Or Okay, the important point of the story is not to give you the specific details of how everything works. It's to encourage you to believe, encourage you to have faith. How do I get in? How do I know if I'm in the kingdom or not in the kingdom or this or that or whatever? Okay, the point of the story isn't to give you all the exact details so that you know everything. The point of it is to motivate you, go for the kingdom. Go for the kingdom. Accept nothing else. Figure out what that means and live that. And then, you know, we'll see what happens. Yeah. I think we need to call it before we melt people's brains even further. Yeah. This was a good one. This was a good one. It was worth an extra few minutes. Oh, yeah. All right. Okie Oh, I blew it. Oh. Uh, All right, we're officially done. Boom. (laughs) Okie dokie. Thank you for listening to the Okie dokie most podcast. Please don't forget to hit that subscribe button so that you're notified when our episodes release on Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We'd also really appreciate it if you left us a review on your podcasting app. So please do that as well. Our podcast is now available on all podcasting platforms. So make sure you check us out on your laptop or your electronic device. You can also visit our official website at www.okidokimos.com for more information or to listen online. And finally, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope and pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.